Genesis chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for this time. We do give you uh, thanks that you're our Heavenly Father, and you give us this wonderful, perfect picture, God, of, of um, what a loving, caring, gracious Father is, because that's what you are for us. And I pray for all the men here, God, who are fathers. And um, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, God, that you would help us to be like you, compassionate and patient and gracious and kind to our own kids. We thank you, God, that you've called us to be fathers and the blessing that that is. And I know, Lord, that that's changed many of our lives for the better. We pray for our fathers who may not be here with us today. And we ask, God, that you bless them, that you would keep them, watch over them. And we give you thanks for them. And I pray, Lord, that all the men who are fathers today would, have, uh, uh, would be made to feel special and appreciated. Lord, we love you. And we ask as we study your word today, God, that you would bless this time that you would teach us, Lord, that we'd see these things that were written all those years ago, these, these, these accounts and these historical records, Father, that we would see them as truths and apply them to our lives, Lord, to see the time that we're living in and, the, and, the, um, and how your return is so ever near. And Lord, as we recognize this again this morning, I pray, God, that you would put a sense of anticipation and expectancy in our hearts. As we look forward to that time, God, when we're caught up into the clouds to be with you, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet, Lord. We long for that day and we look forward to that promise. And God, we, you, you've given us this living hope. And we know that it's true because you've given your life for us and you've put your Holy Spirit in us and you've given us these assurances. So, Father, help us to trust in you more. Help us, Father, to live by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys want to follow along, I'm going to start by just reading through the first 12 verses here of chapter 6. And it tells us in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those who were mighty men, who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and, his, and, he, and, and, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, <clears throat> perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but what I read here 
almost seems like a modern day interpretation of the times that we're living in, of the things that we see going on around us. And that's really the, the focal point of, of, of what we want to look at today. And as we begin this section of Genesis, I mentioned it last week that we ended chapter 5 and we started here this morning in chapter 6 that we're entering a new section. Uh, and in and, and the first five chapters were really the, the, the account of the creation story, more than just the creation story, but the beginning of, of certain things in relationship to man and all created things. And then we looked at the genealogical accounts uh, and the lines of certain descendants of, of, of um, Adam and Eve. And, and that was one section. As we move into this next section, chapters 6 through 9, we're now being given the account of the destruction of the creation. And in light of this, I want to clearly state that I believe this section of the Bible, which tells about a global flood, and um, a global flood that destroyed nearly every living thing, I believe it to be actual events that took place just as we will read them here, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. I, I believe them to be completely accurate and completely true. And I want you to know that to believe these things just as they have been recorded for us here in the Bible, it's, it's, to do this is to have a reasonable faith. It's not unreasonable to believe the Bible and take it for what it says, especially in these kinds of things like the flood and the global flood where they're, they're so often challenged by unbelie unbelieving world. That didn't really happen. That couldn't have happened. And in light of this, I want to first... Um, direct your attention to a couple of things. I want you to be able to believe that this is the truth, that this is, uh, you can have a reasonable faith, and, and a reasonable faith that is substantiated by historical, scientific, and archaeological evidences. And I want to, as we consider this, I want to direct your attention to three points of consideration. The first is the fact that the Bible has never been proven wrong. That's important. If, it has, if even one aspect of it has been proven wrong, then we could go, if I can't trust and believe this part or what it says here, how then can I trust and believe what it says in other places? But the truth is, is the Bible has never been proven wrong. In other words, this is what I mean. Every claim that the Bible makes regarding persons or people, places, ancient or modern, in regards to the New Testament, or even events that, that the Bible records or speaks about, all of these things have always been found to be accurate by those who challenge and test its accuracy. That's not the case with a lot of other religious writings, with a lot of other religious books. For example, the Book of Mormon it records many different people in a historical manner. It, it, the names of people, the names of places, and, 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 and more often than not, those names, those places, those events have no way of being substantiated. None. Not, that's not the case with the Bible. In fact, there has never been any archaeological find that has ever proven the Bible to be historically inaccurate. Never. Rather, with every new archaeological and geological discovery, the validity of the Bible being an accurate and reliable book of history is substantiated over and over and over again. Furthermore, the same can be said in regards 
to the scientific claims that the Bible makes. And you may say, well, the Bible's not a book of science, and I know this, but it still makes scientific claims. And we've talked about this a little bit as we've gone through some of the things that we studied. But for example, the Bible talks about how the earth is round. And it wasn't until what we might even consider a a modern time that, that scientists believe that the earth to be flat. Well, when, when science theory was, was proven wrong, the Bible was proven right in regards to a scientific claim that it had made. <coughs> and again, this happens over and over and over and over again in regards to archaeological things and geological things as well as scientific claims that the Bible makes. It's never been proven long, wrong. In fact, when science... Not scientific theory, okay? There's a difference. When science and not scientific theory is laid alongside the claims that the Bible makes, the Bible has always been proven to be accurate. And these truths about the Bible being a reliable and accurate source for history and science, it should cause us, listen, this is what it all boils down to, it should cause us to go to the Bible and see it as a foundation for what is true. It should be a starting point for what is truth. And everything else, every theory, every kind of idea and opinion that's out there regarding anything should be brought through the sieve of God's Word. And if it doesn't line up with God's Word, we should cast it away as something not true. Why? Because this is reliable. Why? Because this is historically accurate, scientifically accurate. The point of all this is to say that when we start with the understanding of the historical and scientific infallibility of the Bible in relationship to what we read here with Noah and the ark and the events recorded about the flood, we can conclude as a result of many evidences that there was a man who was named Noah who built an ark in obedience to God's command in order to save or be saved from a global flood. And these evidences support the Bible's historic claim as to how it happened. Furthermore, when we consider Noah or the flood or the global destruction that it brought, we must also consider the additional evidences of the personal testimony of Jesus, who also referred to Noah and the flood as literal events. And he did so by making some comparisons. This is the cool thing. Jesus, when, when referencing the flood, when referring to Noah as a, as a literal person of, that, that existed and a literal event that took place, Jesus made a comparison to what took place then to his coming and the second destruction that's going to come upon the earth. And Jesus' words regarding, regarding this are recorded for us in Matthew chapter 24, also in the Gospel of Luke, but more precisely in detail in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 41, where Jesus said this. He said, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And Jesus is speaking again about his return and that coming judgment that we're looking to, to come to pass shortly. He says, no one knows the exact day or the exact hour, not even the heavens and the earth. He says, not even me, not the Son, but only the Father. But as it was, he says, in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
In other words, Jesus, like we know in other parables and other passages of Scripture, he says we do not know the exact day, the exact hour in which Jesus will return and the judgment that will be poured out upon the earth. He says, but we can know what it's going to be like when that time draws near. We can know the season. We may not know the day or the hour, but we can know the season, the approximate time in which this is going to happen. Jesus went on and said, and said, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered in the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now I want to point out that that their, that their lack of knowledge of what was going to happen to them wasn't, wasn't because they had not been informed. We're going to talk about that. They weren't ignorant. They were hard-hearted. They would not receive and believe the truth. And Jesus said, this is how it will all be at the coming of the Son of Man. He said, two, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. In light of these words, Jesus of Jesus, which a lot of these words of Jesus, which tell us of his return and about a second judgment that will come upon the earth, it's important for us to see the parallels between how it was in Noah's day and how it is now. And as we consider this in light of what we read here in chapter six. This morning, I'm going to point to four of these parallels that we can glean from our text. Parallels between the things in Noah's day and things that are going on now in the time that we are living in. So that we might discern the time. So that we might be prepared for the rapture of the church and have assurance that we will not, or have the assurance that we will be taken and that we will not be left behind to face the second judgment that is to come. Before we look at Genesis chapter 6 and we go through these verses, it's important for me to tell you that, that Noah and the flood are, 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 are referred to or spoken of or referenced somewhere around 50 times throughout nine books of the Bible. And one of these references is made by the Apostle Peter, who spoke of the flood and reminded the church to remember three specific things. Okay, In this passage, I'm going to read to you... Peter wanted the church to be reminded of three specific things in relationship to the flood. The first thing that he wanted the church to know, and us as well, is that Jesus is coming back. The second thing is that he wanted us to, to, to know this so that we did not doubt his return, as is the case with some. And the third thing that Peter wanted the early church to know that we also need to consider in light of what we're reading today is that Peter wanted the early church to know that they should be prepared for that day. Are we prepared? I was sharing with a young girl, um, one of my daughter's friends who was over at the house last night and, 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 and she's, she didn't grow up really in a church home, doesn't know a lot about the Bible. I believe she's a Christian and she's genuinely seeking and she didn't know about the rapture of the church. She'd heard about it and she's, what's the rapture? And so I got to speak to her and talk to her about it and lay it out for her and encourage her. And, and you know, I, 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 what I gathered is I, from it is, is even though Molly and her spoke about how that can kind of be an, a, a kind of a scary thing, not knowing, you know, she's all, well, that means that Jesus could come back at any moment, like right now. And it's like, yeah, Jesus could come back at any moment. 
you could come back right now. As a matter of fact, when she said that, then I got to take her through some of the prophecies in the Bible that said, that's not going to happen until these things happen. And I told her that these things, biblically, have come to pass. And that there's really nothing left in regards to prophecy that must come to pass before the rapture of the church. When we begin to think about that, we should really go, are we prepared? Are we ready? You know, we're going on vacation tonight. We're leaving. And, and my wife has just felt this, this sense of urgency um, that uh, she needed to speak to our boys and her brother and other family members. And, and, and I mean, she's just, I mean, it's almost like this. Are you a Christian? <laughs> you know? This is my mo- I'm your mom and it's my prerogative. And, and not that, that we doubt those things. She just wants them, she, I think she wants to just comfort her own heart knowing that we're going and going to be on a plane and, and all these kinds of things. But, you know, I think it's more so the sense that she knows there's a sense of urgency and she's challenging these people in her life to go, are you ready? Are you prepared? Do you know the Lord? He's coming soon. And in, and in light of these few, th- few things, three things. Peter, he, he spoke about the first judgment that came upon the earth and how the earth was, was flooded with water. And in doing so, he points out how the second judgment, which is to come, that will come on the earth, that the second judgment will be by, anyone? Fire. And this is in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verses 1 through 7, Peter wrote about these things, and this is what he said. He said, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to encourage you or to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles. He said, remember what the prophet said. And he says, remember what Jesus has taught us. He said, first of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires they will say where is the coming he promised ever since our fathers died everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of the creation but peter says they deliberately forget deliberately forget that long ago by god's word The heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these same waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of these ungodly men. The point is, the flood... And the destruction in Noah's day that came as a result of God's judgment not only points us to the judgment that is to come, it also reminds us that even though so many perished during the flood, that there were still eight souls. Eight souls that were saved along with much of God's creation that did not perish as a result of God's plan of salvation. Likewise, it's this, this, this salvation that points us to the salvation that we have received through Jesus from the judgment that is to come. And it's just like, and, and just like it was a salvation in Noah's day, 
and his family, just like that salvation was a salvation that was received by grace through faith, as we've read already, so too is the salvation that we receive today, a salvation that comes to us by grace through faith. Now, if you look with me back to verses 1 and 2 here, it says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, as we look back to these first two verses, we're told that men began to multiply upon the face of the earth. And, and we are first told that these men, these sons of God, saw daughters of men and they took wives for themselves for they saw that they were beautiful. In light of this, we need to remember that one of Satan's most successful tools in getting us to sin is compromise. Compromise. And he does so in order to corrupt us. And he does so in order to lead us away from what God's best is. See, compromise is settling for something that's not the best. And when we compromise, we enter into sin. It leads us into sin. And when the sons of God here took for themselves wives of these daughters of men, this is exactly what was going on. It was a compromise. Remember, 1 John chapter 1, verses First uh, John chapter 2, it tells us that all sin falls into one of three categories, right? The lust of eyes, the pride of life, and, and the lust of the flesh. And here in verse 2, we are told that because of what the sons of God saw with their eyes, they chose wives for themselves. And when we read God's response to this in verse 3, we see that in doing so, they had sinned against God. In fact, in the text in verse 12... It tells us that these sons of God not only sinned, but they turned away from God and that they corrupted their way upon the earth. And I need to take some time to point out that, that, that there's much debate over this passage of Scripture. Much debate over this passage of Scripture in regards to who these sons of God and daughters of men are referring to. And on each side of the debate, I will confess there are very wise and intelligent Bible scholars whom I respect on both sides of the debate that offer convincing arguments. But this morning, I'm not going to really enter into this debate. Rather, I simply want to bring light to the two different schools of thought so that I can say that we've addressed it. And this is because I believe ultimately which side of the debate you land on is really not of any great importance since there truly is no doctrinal or theological consequences surrounding what side of the fence you land on here. Now, one of the lines of thoughts follow some of the things that I've kind of already alluded to in that the sons of God were the godly descendants of Seth that we read about last week in chapter 5. And the daughters of men, in contrast or contrary to, were the ungodly descendants of Cain that we read about back in chapter 4. Now, the other line of thinking is that these daughters of men is a general reference to the, the whole of mankind and, and not a, a reference to any specific um, genealogical line. And, 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 and then the sons of God is a reference to fallen angels, those who went with Satan when he rebelled against God. And when it comes to one of these points of view in regards to um, 
its accuracy, the truth is, is we cannot make any clear determination with the information given here or from other passages of Scripture that might act as a cross-reference to, to have us lean on, on uh, uh, come to one side of, of the discussion or debate or another. There's, there's really not concrete biblical truth to point us in, that, in one clear direction. But because there is speculation on both sides of the argument, I will say the only way that we're going to know for sure is when we stand before God and ask Him for ourselves. I personally think there's more important questions to ask God when that time happens, when we get that chance. However, I'm going to give you my opinion. Don't do this very often. And it's opinion. It's just an opinion. And you know how I feel about opinions in regards to the teaching of the Word of God. An opinion is like an armpit. We all got them. And they stink. And maybe my opinion stinks. But I, my opinion rests in this. My opinion rests in my belief that you have to hold fast to the contextual integrity of scriptures, of the scriptures in order to come to a right understanding. And so my opinion rests in contextual, what I believe is the contextual integrity of the scriptures. In light of that, I'm going to say, in my opinion, I believe that these sons of God were the descendants of Seth, who followed God. These men, according to chapter 4, verse 26, who began to call upon the name of the Lord. And in contrast, these sons of men would be, I believe, the ungodly descendants of Cain, who not only despised and mocked God, but even cursed God. Remember, remember um, uh, from the chapter 4, verse 23, Lamech, after killing a man and what he said. And if this is the case, what we're being told, if I'm right, then what we're being told is that even these godly descendants of Seth eventually turned aside from God. They eventually turned aside from God and joined the rest of mankind who was intent in doing evil and thought continually about evil. And truthfully, this goes along with what we're reading here and what we're being told, that all of the earth ended up being this place. And so something happened from chapter 5 to what we read at the middle of chapter 6 here, and I believe the explanation is given to us in verses 1 and 2, where these godly men of Seth lusted with what they saw after their eyes and went and became unequally yoked, in a sense. Not only that, that kind of... That kind of thought falls true to Romans chapter 3 verse 10 which says there is none righteous no not one there is none who understands there is none who seeks God they have all turned aside and they have all together become unprofitable there is none good no not one even the godly descendants of Seth now as we look back to the text found here in chapter 6 we're told that during this time here's probably a more important discussion at this time we're told that men begin to multiply upon the face of the earth and when we look to the words Jesus had written back in Matthew chapter 24, which I previously read, we can see that this reference here is more than just a casual mention. And men begin to multiply upon the earth. There's something more to what we're being told. In fact, this is one of the key things for us to identify in relationship to as it was then, so it will be before Jesus comes again. This is what I mean. Now, men and women who are smarter than me have calculated that during Noah's day, there could have been 
between 3.6 billion and 14.7 billion people on the earth at this time by chapter 6. And this might seem like a large gap. I mean, that's like 11 billion people, right? But when you figure on a generational scale and, and alongside exponential growth from one generation to the next, a generation figured out 40 years, the growth of just one generation, a 40-year gap, a 40-year period of time, will easily fill 3.6 to 14.7 billion. So really, that's within one generation of accuracy to consider that. And, and for example... In relationship to the time that we're currently living in now, it wasn't until the year 1801 that the Earth's population had once again reached 1 billion people. That's documented. Yet it only took 129 years for the population of the Earth to double, going from 1 billion to 2 billion people in 1930. Then, in less than 30 years, the population in 1959 increased to 3 billion and since then, it has grown exponentially, with the Earth's population growing to 4 billion people in 1974, then to 5 billion people in 1987, and to 6 billion people in 1999. That's 1 billion people in less than 11 years. 6 billion or 5 billion to 6 billion. In less than 11 years, 1 billion people. And today, with the current population of the Earth, it has reached 7.4 billion people. 7.4 billion people is the population of the earth today. And, and, and um, just so you know, the earth's population increases. Now, this is figured on a birth rate and a death rate. And when you take those two numbers, the birth rate and the death rate, and you subtract them on a global scale, today there are 160,000 people born every day. 24 hours. That's the rate in which the population of the earth is increasing. 160,000 people every 24 hours. And with this current rate of growth, this means that the earth's population could double from 7.4 billion to nearly 15 billion people in less than 20 years. That's a half a generation. That helps us understand two things, why there would be such a gap in the guesstimation of the population of the earth at the time, but also helps us to see, as it was in the days of Noah, so it is today with men multiplying upon the earth, multiplying exponentially. But in addition to men multiplying upon the face of the earth, we also know that during Noah's day, abnormal and immoral sexual practices were the norm. Genesis chapter 6 refers to the sons of God marrying and having physical relations with the, son, with the daughters of men. And whether you choose to believe that these were relations between fallen angels, as some do, and humans or ungodly men with were ungodly women, the point is the same. Whatever aisle you fall in, the point is the same in that the physical relations that they were entering into was a perverted thing because it was what not what God had intended. Likewise, the sexual perversion we see going on in our age has become so pronounced that it's accepted as the norm by most in society. That's really the difference. Now, it's not that these these sexual immoral things are just new to the time that we're living in. That's not the case. There's, there's nothing new under the sun, Solomon writes. 
And all the same kind of sexual perversion that goes on today was going on 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. What's different now, which is the same as it was in Noah's day, is that these things were accepted as the norm. Consequently, things like pornography, homosexuality, sex outside of the marriage, and even multiple partners within the marriage relationship has become a common thing. It's not the exception to the rule anymore. In fact, if you are in a monogamous relationship and you are married to a man, if you're a woman or if you're married to a woman, if you're a man, this seems to be the exception of the day. If we look to verse 3, and it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. Yet his day shall be 120 years. Now, in these verses, we're told that in Noah's day, God graciously gave mankind 120 years to repent of their evil ways. This is not saying that, that all of a sudden man now is only going to live to be 120 years old. Because we look back to the generational accounts from chapter 5, and we see that these guys lived hundreds of years. And it's not like God goes, well, I'm sick of man. I'm only going to allow him to live 120 years. What God was saying at this point when God realized this, he said, you guys got 120 years left and all of mankind is done. Matter of fact, what God was saying, he says, I'm only going to strive with you for 120 more years and then it's done. And so God was given the men of that day time to repent of the evil ways and be saved, but none did. In fact, during this time where it tells us that the, that, 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 that the Holy Spirit was continually to, continuing to strive with mankind, I want to point out that the Hebrew word here is the word deen, D-E-E-D-E-E-N. And, and, it, and it literally means this. This is cool. This word means to plead the cause. God's Holy Spirit during this time was pleading the cause. And we can see through this, once again, how God's desire, even when men's thoughts were continually towards evil, God's desire was for men to repent, not for men to be destroyed. Furthermore, it reveals how God is patient, how God is kind, how God is long-suffering towards us, continually giving us the opportunity to choose Him and to do the right thing. Not, and not only, get this, not only was God's Spirit striving or pleading with mankind, calling mankind to turn from their wicked ways, to turn from their evil, <coughs> God had also sent men to prophesy and warn about this coming judgment. If we think back to last week's study from chapter 5, you might remember a man by the name of Enoch in the, in the genealogy of Seth, a man who never died, we're told. A man who walked with God, who was and was not, and after 300 years, God took him. But if you look to the New Testament in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, we're told that during these years that Enoch walked with God, these years leading up to the flood, Enoch was prophesying and he was warning the people about the judgment that was to come. They were informed. And in Jude chapter, or in Jude verses 14 through 15, it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all 
who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In other words, guys, God's going to judge this. Repent. That's what Enoch Enoch did. He was a prophet who warned about the judgment to come. And the fact of the matter is, is as God is as God had previously done in Noah's day, he is once again doing in our day. In that, God, we're told, has sent his Holy Spirit in a way that he has never done before, but nevertheless, for the same purpose, God has sent his Holy Spirit to plead with mankind. Jesus spoke about this as a word of encouragement to his disciples when he was telling them, hey, listen, I'm leaving you because I'm going to go be with my Father in heaven. And in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, who's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. He says, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come... Listen, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing today. Of sin, he says, because they do not believe. Of judgment, because I go to my Father in heaven and you see me no more. And, because of, and, and of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And like Enoch, listen guys, here's the other side of it. Like Enoch, who was sent to warn about the judgment that was coming, God is doing that today through us, we the church. And just like Enoch was sent to warn about the judgment that was coming, we the church have been called, commissioned, sent out to be witnesses who testify of the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ that saves us from this judgment that is going to come. I don't know about you, but this should give us an incredible hope. It should. It should give you, it should fill you with encouragement and hope this morning in regards to those whom we love, our friends, our family members who we know who have not yet accepted Jesus. And I and, and we need to be encouraged and we need to be reminded of these things because it can be discouraging. It can be overwhelming when we see those who we love whose thoughts are continually towards evil. And going after what everything else in this world is considering to be normal, and not only normal, but good. And we go, we go, when we see that, we go, how can God, I mean, we know God can in our head, but in our heart we think it's lost. We think that, that it's hopeless situation. But this is not the case. We can have hope in knowing that God is sending Christians like us all over the world to share Jesus with them. We can have hope in the fact that the Holy Spirit is pleading with them, convicting them of sin and unrighteousness, and warning them about the judgment that is to come. As it was in Noah's day, so it is today. Verse 5, we read, and it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man, 
on the earth. And he grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The imagination is a wonderful thing. But even the imagination can be something that leads us into sin. What are your thoughts towards? I love doing the, I love doing the kids' ministry on Wednesday nights because kids are imaginative. You know, and I get to be back there with them, and we do some pretty creative things, and we do some role-playing, and we do some, some skits, and, and, and all of those things, and using our imaginations help us to see the Word of God come alive. And man, kids, when you do that with them, their eyes light up and they, I get it. But here we see that the imagination or our mind in relationship to the things that we think on can also be something that's very corrupt. And in the days of Noah, the imagination of man was, 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 it says, was evil continually. The word imagination simply can be simply defined as the mind's image. The mind's image. And one of the things that goes a long way to reveal what images are on the mind of mankind today is the fact, guys, that it hit a new record, by the way, in 2015. Internet pornography has now reached an annual revenue of $97 billion in 2015. <clears throat> if it wasn't for internet pornography, some people say that the internet would not exist. In addition to this, if you simply turn on the TV, we get a pretty good idea of what images are being placed into the minds of mankind continually. And when we consider these things, it's easy to conclude that mankind has a mind that is filled and continually focused upon evil things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Evil is continually on the imagination of mankind in our age, just like it was in Noah's day. And in verse 5, it tells us that God's judgment came in Noah's age because the wickedness of man was great. <clears throat> you know what? You think about wickedness and you think about great wickedness. What does that mean? What are we being told here? <clears throat> you know, great, great wickedness is, is when wicked and perverted things are not only accepted as the norm, but they are celebrated as something that is good. That's great wickedness. When men call good evil and evil good. And I truly believe this sums up the times that we are living in. And like it was in the days of Noah, so it is today. Verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. I don't think I need to go into that as a comparison, do I? I think we all agree that the earth is filled 
with violence today. And so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. But, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Amazing grace. You know, I was just in eyes. I didn't, even though I was here in the morning and helping out with the sound, for some reason I didn't know that Grace Like Rain was the song you were going to sing. And I was going to do, I just felt like that's the song we needed to do. And so I was going to do what we did last Sunday. I was going to come up here until you guys stay on the stage, if that wasn't your last song, and go, we need to do one more song. Can you do this? And, and it was just so perfect how God's Spirit is always connecting what goes on in our lives. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. God's unmerited and unearned favor. And Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> there's at least three times in Scripture where it tells us that God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Those are specific references to specific quotes, but as you know, all throughout the Bible, that philosophy or that principle of God giving grace to the humble and resisting the proud is taught. And I point this out because Noah was humble. And we are told this where we're told this where we read in verse 9 where it says that Noah walked with God. And this simply means that Noah lived, submitted to God. He acknowledged God to be his creator. In turn, he took his proper position to God as the created thing, walking with God in humility. And, and guys, listen, when we reside in this place, in humility, when we reside in this place, God will flood us with things that we do not deserve. And when we consider grace, God's unmerited favor, we need to see that grace is what sets Christianity apart from all other creations, or, or all other religions, excuse me. <clears throat> I was at the bank the other day, and there's a young girl there, and she's, I don't know what she said, she said something like, I, I was joking around, and she's, and we're talking, and she goes, she said something like,